This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, we are really excited to be hosting our first live podcast recording and panel discussion with Beyond the Studio at the new Institute of Contemporary Art San Francisco. We are really honored to be a part of their Meantime program, which is a series of takeovers and pop-ups occurring during renovations here at 901 Minnesota Street between January and April in advance of their official fall 2022 opening. Uh, Before we introduce our wonderful panelists and get to the topic of tonight's conversation, titled Artists Over Institutions, How Can Arts Organizations Support the Needs of Living Working Artists? We wanted to introduce ourselves and extend a few thank yous. This conversation, like Amanda said, is being recorded to be later released as an episode of Beyond the Studio podcast. Uh, We are the co-hosts. My name is Nicole Muller. I'm a visual artist, painter, muralist, and installation artist based here in San Francisco. And I'm Amanda Adams, a fiber artist, illustrator, and founder of the small business Close Call Studio based in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, For those of you that are new to the podcast or unfamiliar with Beyond the Studio, we are a podcast about the career paths of working contemporary artists. We both met in art school over 10 years ago and realized on graduating that we had a lot of questions about the practicalities of building a sustainable career in the arts and found the topics of how artists were making a living and supporting their work to be strangely taboo. So we started Beyond the Studio in order to have honest and in-depth conversations with working artists about their business practices, time management, financial planning, and how they're navigating the unique challenges of making a living creatively. In other words, all the work that goes on beyond the studio. (laughs) Uh, We believe in the power of storytelling as a form of professional development, and that through sharing these individualized accounts of artist experiences, we might collectively feel more empowered uh, on our own creative journeys. Um, We've also seen this play out in our own lives since we started the podcast in 2017. Amanda and I have both been able to take our own creative practices full-time, in large part because of what we've learned through Beyond the Studio. Our mission is to bring more transparency and generosity to the art world by sharing these open and honest conversations on the podcast. 
Uh, to date, we've recorded over 100 episodes, and all of them can be streamed for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, there should also be a card on everyone's chair with a QR code in the back that goes directly to Apple Podcasts, uh, where you can follow us if you're not familiar with Beyond the Studio. And there's some extra cards at the front, too, so you're more than welcome to grab one on your way out. Um, we also just wanted to extend a thank you to our fiscal sponsor. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of independent arts and media. Uh, so we'd like to thank them for their support. Um, and obviously we'd like to thank the ICASF for hosting this conversation. Uh, tonight, again, is our very first live in-person podcast recording. Uh, so thank you so much for hosting us and thank you all for being here. And now to introduce our amazing panelists here to my left. Uh, the title of tonight's talk is Artists Over Institutions, How Can an Arts Organization Support the Needs of Living, Working Artists? And the topic is a changing role of museums as art-centered institutions and how museums can become models for equity by supporting the needs of living, working artists here in the Bay Area and beyond. Um, our panelists are Allison Gass of ICASF right here, uh, Tammy Johnson of Creatives in Place, Valerie Imus, Art Artistic Director and Co-Director of Southern Exposure Gallery, and Jessalyn Alland, Artist and Creator of Organizing Power. And to help, you, to help you get to know them and their work, we'd love to read their official bios for you here. Uh, we'll begin with Allison Gass on the end over there. Allison is the ICA San Francisco's Founding Executive Director her leadership in museums has reflected a sustained commitment to building globally-minded and community-engaged exhibitions programs and diversifying museums' collections, exhibition programs, staff, and visitorship. Before helping to launch the ICA San Francisco, Gass served as the Dana Feitler Director of the Smart Museum of Art at the University of Chicago. Prior to that, Gass was the Chief Curator at the Cantor Art Center at Stanford University and assistant curator at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. ICASF is not her first startup museum. After leaving SFMOMA, Gas served as founding chief curator at the Eli and Edith Broad Art Museum at Michigan State University, where she helped launch the new building, recruited a staff, and established a global contemporary art program. She holds degrees in art history from Columbia University and the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. Tammy Johnson, who is closest to me here on the right, uh, is a dancer, producer, culture keeper, writer, equity consultant, and godmother extraordinaire. Johnson directed living wage, welfare rights, and public education and election campaigns as a community organizer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She has partnered with World Trust and Art Slash Work Practice and spent a decade at Race Forward as a national organizer, trainer, writer, and policy analyst. Johnson co-produced the television special Color Lines, Race and, Race and Economic Recovery with Link TV, and she's also the curator of creativesinplace.org, a listening project and digital platform that features the stories of Bay Area artists and their work. Johnson specializes in, is it Rox Baladi? Baladi. Rox Baladi also known as Egyptian-style belly dance, and was a recipient of the 2016 Deborah Slater Studio 201 Residency Program, and a featured performer in the 2017 Live Arts in Residence at uh, Eastside Arts Alliance. The Open Base Johnson embraces work that is healing and giving her joy. Uh, Valerie Imus, 
next to Tammy here, is the co-director and artistic director at Southern Exposure, an artist-centered nonprofit organization committed to supporting visual artists and whose mission is to remain accessible and responsive to the needs of artists and their San Francisco Mission District community since 1974. Valerie Amis oversees the three main programs at SOEX, projects and exhibitions, artists in education, and their re-granting initiative, Alternative Exposure, um, which, full disclosure, Beyond the Studio was a lucky recipient of in 2017. Yep. Uh, since 2011, Valerie has curated and overseen numerous exhibitions, projects, performances, and events in the gallery and off-site. Formerly, she was the exhibitions manager at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and the curatorial assistant at the CCA Wattis Institute. She has curated projects for the Oakland Museum of California, Mills College Art Museum, and Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and created projects for SFMOMA and the Berkeley Art Museum. She holds an MFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And Jessalyn Holland, our last panelist, uh, is a Bay Area visual artist working across painting, sculpture, print, social practice, and public art. Her work explores the impact of systems on our, on our daily lives with a sense of humor, hope, and joy. Through her color, shapes, and familiar imagery, Alland hopes to convey the possibility that a more utopian society is not unreachable. Alland's project, Class Set, has provided over 20,000 free resograph-printed resograph art artist-designed posters featuring quotes by authors and activists to schools worldwide. Her project, Organizing Power, provides arts and nonprofit workers tools to form unions at their workplaces through resograph printed booklets and has helped workers at museums across the country unionize. Alland has been supported with funding from Southern Exposure, Portland Institute for Contemporary Art, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and the San Francisco Art Commission. She has been an artist in residence at Facebook, uh, Menlo Park, Real Time and Space, Oakland, and Sim, Reykjavik, and was a 2018-2019 YBCA fellow. All right, so to kick off the conversation, um, we thought a good way to sort of frame the conversation and get to know each of your perspectives a little bit would be to start with this term artist-centered, uh, which is kind of at the heart of our um, topic of conversation tonight. And so we wondered if uh, you could each share what this term artist-centered means to you and um, maybe how you might define an artist-centered uh, organization or what it means in the context of an arts organization for them to be truly artist-centered. Um, I suppose we can kind of go on down the line here if uh, Tammy you would like to start. Even if one can hear me, wonderful. Artist-centered. That's a, it's a interesting phrase to me because I really do believe that an artist could be any and everyone in the community. And so what does it mean to bring community in? What does it mean to focus that energy around art and community and the people? And also, I, I come from a framework that artists are part of community and not separate from, right? And perhaps what makes us distinct is that we have decided that our calling in life, our station, is our art. <laughs> Right, uh, it's something that we have to do as part of our passion and direction of life. So if you're having a project 
or a institution that is artist-centered, then you're really engaging people in their passion and in how that passion exists in the world and society and not separate from. Um, and I think that's really critical because I think otherwise it's easy to go down the route of being very elitist about what is art and who gets to be an artist and how people are to engage. And more and more as I speak to artists, especially in this historical moment that we're in, uh, there, there are people who are actually very connected to the community, very connected to the issues that are primary in this moment. And, and so to be separated for, from that is something that many of them do not choose, but oftentimes are forced to consider or engage when they engage with institutions or certain individuals. So to be artist-centered is to realize that that's part of the whole. And, and I think that's really important, uh, that you're not extracting from someone's humanity and saying this is the piece that I find valuable and that I want to work and play with. But it's that piece that's part of a whole that you really need to step back and look at what is that whole. And, and how is that whole uh, interconnected with the rest of society, the rest of their own community, people that they call their family. And especially in this time, and really this is a framework of which I work from, it's like how are we all gonna get free at the end of the day? Right, how are we gonna get free? And, and as an artist, your route to freedom is often through your art. And so that has to be part of the conversation if we're working on any project within any institution. How do we get free? How does my community get free? Um, how do we free society from a lot of things that, that dehumanize us? Um, that is part of, an integral part of being artist-centered. Wow. Yeah, that is beautiful. I kind of yeah. want to just leave it there. I know. That's really <laughs> good. Said it. Um, so yeah, I think it's about it's about community, it's about relationships, and um, so Southern Exposure was founded by artists and, and kind of embraces that term artist-centered because it was founded by artists who lived at a live workspace that still exists, Project Arto as a way for artists to, to show their own work. And then it became, it kind of evolved from there, but we maintained that artists are at the center of what we do in that we're in relationship with, with artists, that there's a constant conversation of back and forth going on. And that creative decisions in the organization are, are made by artists. Everyone on staff is an artist. Um, all of our um, curators, our, our artists are part of, we have a curatorial council that makes all, all of our decisions about exhibitions and projects and and everything um, that we do is, is responsive to the needs of, of artists in this particular moment. So, you know, the, it has to be a kind of constant, flexible, fluid back and forth, I think. I think just to add to that, I would also say the, the flexibility is a really important part. Um, like a project that's driven by an artist isn't going to look the same as a project driven by an institution. Um, and I think a lot about Southern Exposure to me is such a great example of an artist-driven institution. I'm an artist who's really greatly benefited from the funding I've received 
from projects from Southern Exposure. And um, I think a lot with the um, Alternative Exposure Grant that um, SOEC started, this idea that projects that are experimental, that don't have a place in other institutions and that might fail, I think is really critical to thinking about what an artist-centered institution looks like. Um, whereas like, uh, instead of like traditional metrics or structures or frameworks, um, so there's a there's a, an element of risk and responsiveness. In a way previous life, I used to be a high school teacher, and a lot of my work was about having that relationship with the students and thinking about like what each student needed and what kind of support that particular individual needed. And I think a really truly artist-run institution is about like how can I like help this artist do the best possible work they can do that they might not be able to do anywhere else. And I think to me that is really like what an artist-run uh, institution is like. Um, I think it's so interesting. Thank you. You guys have made such really powerful comments. I see San Francisco is a museum. Um, it's not a museum that we know and understand yet because it hasn't opened to the public yet. Um, it is a non-collecting contemporary art museum, which means that it is a museum that will tell stories to our audiences, not based on collections and based on narratives that are coming out of the basement, but rather stories that are told from artists, right? From artists that we invite in through stories that we think are important based on things that are happening in the world and we will invite artists because we think they have something important to say because they will help us navigate the critical issues that are happening in the world around us. The reason I think non-collecting contemporary art museums are really significant, particularly now, is because um, collecting institutions where I have spent most of my career working are also really important, but oftentimes those are difficult in the sense that they can't be quite as nimble, right? They can't immediately change directions when a pandemic hits or when issues of racial equity come to the forefront of our civilization immediately because collections can't change quickly. They can't change for economic regions. They can't change for storage regions. But non-collecting institutions can quickly change directions and invite an artist in. And that is what ICA aims to really be able to do. So you will see us inviting artists in, being able to commission artists, and being able, we hope, to really pretty quickly say, hey, we see you. We think you live and work in the same world we live and work in, and you have an ability to help us navigate cultural, political, social issues that are the same ones we navigate, but you artists have an amazing ability to help us see things differently. And we would like our audiences to see things perhaps the way that you see them. Um, and that's, I think, the power of the Kunsthalle, as we call it in Europe, and ICA, as we call it often in the United States, non-collecting institutions. Um, and so the ICA model that we really hope to bring to the Bay Area um, will be a series of ongoing exhibitions that collapse the space, we hope, between art and life, or the institution and the outside world, that really is driven certainly by the work of the artists, the programming that we do will come out of the exhibitions, right, out of the voice of the artists. So to that extent, the ICA will certainly be an artist-driven institution. It's certainly still going to be a curated program, so I think that's an important thing to understand, right? 
we can keep going and talking about that. But yeah, that's, that's what we are. Yeah, when we think about this term artist-centered, um, we were thinking about how to support the needs of living, working artists, and there's a tendency among some museums to prioritize art over artists, yeah. and that extends societally as well. There's a statistic that I think we first encountered on the website of United States Artists, which is a national grant-making organization, and um, this study's a little bit dated at this point, but it was from a 2003 Urban Institute, study that revealed 96% uh, of Americans surveyed uh, said they valued art in their lives, while only 27% said they valued artists. And so there was a huge gap in the way that we value art and culture um, and the way that we value the people behind that actually producing the work. Um, and that's called Investing in Creativity, a study for the support structure for US artists, for anyone that's interested. Um, but there are a couple of ways that we wanted to break down this conversation around what an artist-centered organization looks like. Um, and so we were thinking about how to define support in the museum context, and we wanted to look at it both internally, uh, so looking within the museum, uh, whether through staff, through programming or exhibitions, um, but also externally, uh, the kinds of ripple effects that can happen within the community or indirect forms of support, um, maybe through grants or things like Meantime. time. Um, and then we also wanted to talk about different forms of support. Um, I think for this conversation in particular, the financial uh, was a big one, how are artists economically supported, um, but also emotional support, just the value of being seen and heard um, and the importance of representation. And we very specifically chose you all um, based on your unique experiences in centering artists and being artists. Um, and we want to give you a chance to talk about your work and experience through your careers. Um, and Allie, we can start with you. Uh, can you highlight a few examples from your previous museum roles and talk about what your vision is for ICASF? Yes. <laughs> OK. <laughs> um, about artists, specifically? I guess what you've learned from your various roles uh, that you want to take into applying here. Totally. Okay. Oh my gosh. Um, so I see San Francisco is for sure born out of both like some totally negative and totally positive experiences that I have had in my lifelong career as a curator and then eventually as a museum professional leader, I've always been a museum professional, but as a museum director, which is because, you know, I, I started my job, my career as really my like real museum curatorial career began at SF MoMA, which I say all the time was really where I learned like the business of curatorial practice at like the highest level, big budgets, like um, big exhibitions, best collections, what have you. Um, and that was really great. But in a lot of ways, it also was I didn't really get to do exactly what I wanted to do. And then I went to university museums, and there was a lot of thinking and a lot of doing, but there also wasn't still a lot of fast-paced work. And I was often told, oh, that's a little too political. These universities are a little more conservative. And there were some bad things that happened that we don't need to go and do right now. But then some good things happened too. Um, and then as the pandemic hit, I had moved my family to Chicago, and we really realized that um, 
the Bay Area for lots of reasons was really our sort of home and really wanted to move back. And in lots of ways, as I talked about, I really came to believe that non-collecting institutions were able, I believe, for me, and just for me, I can only speak for me, um, to make fast things happen, to make change happen. It's very hard to turn a big ship. It's much easier to turn a small ship. It's much easier to do something, um, to move something faster when it's a smaller budget, when you don't have a big collection, when you have a small staff, all this stuff. So my uh, sort of moment happened when I was sort of in the pandemic, I had just moved home, I had taken a kind of relatively temporary-ish job to kind of, and then people came to me and they were like, hey, there sort of feels like there might be a possibility of an opening in this ecosystem where there could be space for a non-collecting contemporary art museum to come into the ecosystem in the Bay Area and add to all the wonderful things that already exist here. Would you be interested in making something happen? And I was like, I think there could be space here. Let's let's see what we could make happen. And that's a very short version of a very long story. But and that's sort of how we got to today. Um, and my belief is that there's an incredible privilege that I have been given to start a new institution in the middle of a pandemic coming out of the racial reckoning of the summer of 2020. And what I like, what I think is very important to say is that for many of us who have been working in the arts, there are not new revelations about inequities that have existed in the art world for a very long time, right? The reality that salaries have been too low and that you've had to have other sources of income to work in museums, right? That. Um, the stories that have been told through exhibitions or collections have been largely those of primarily white artists or male artists or artists from countries that are particularly Western or things like that, right? We know this, but that has become more common parlance in the last two years, let's say. So I think that having the privilege to start an institution in 2021 meant that it wasn't as big of a battle to put those values and that language front and center. So I had then the, I'm gonna say privilege, but also the, the easy-ish, and it wasn't, an, it wasn't an uphill battle, though it had been in much of my more recent career to kind of argue that to people. It was just, that was it, right? If we're gonna start an institution, this is what it's gonna be. And so we said that, and we have now to do that. Um, so the ICA came out and said, we're gonna do this. We're gonna start an institution, and these are the, this is what we're gonna do. And it's not that easy, of course, but, we're gonna say that we're gonna do it and we're gonna hire a staff and we're gonna build a board and we're gonna then build a community board and we're gonna build a group of people around us and I'm gonna ask everyone who's listening and everyone who's in this room and the board we eventually build and the team we're gonna keep building to continue to hold us accountable because the other thing we're gonna do with the ICA is try to be quite transparent as we build it. We're gonna continue to make missteps as I have in the last six months as we've built it. Um, I guess I've never built a museum. No, very few people have had the opportunity to build a museum from scratch. Um, so it's a process and it's very exciting to build a museum transparently. 
And so I take with me all the lessons I personally have learned. We were talking backstage, so to speak, about how the ICA is to some extent a little bit about me because I was the one who had for lots of reasons the opportunity to build it, but it, it can't and won't be about me for very long. It shouldn't be about me for very long. And I'm excited for it to not be about me for much longer. God, please don't let it be about me for much longer. But yeah, um, I'm excited for all of you to, as we open our doors and become a real institution, for it to be about lots of people because the exciting thing about museums is that they are for a community and they are for artists and they are for community members and the ICA will grow well beyond me and that's a very exciting idea and a big burden um, for me as well. Um, so, okay, that's a lot. I'm stopping now. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, Tammy, I'm going to throw the question to you next. Uh, can you talk about your project, Creatives in Place, and talk a little bit more about your background as a community organizer? Um, I'll start with the second one. So, yeah, I, I'm one of these people who uh, didn't, the identity of an artist didn't happen for me until my mid-30s. Um, and up until that point and afterwards, um, I was a community organizer, a national organizer, dealing with various issues. Um, and, you know, that's something that came out of my background in terms of my, I came from a family of activists out of the South, Tennessee. And so I was, I've been an activist since 9, 10, 12 years old. The church we were in elected the first black state senator in, in Wisconsin. Um, so that's been in my blood and it continues to be, even as I deal with issues of art and equity. And it informs that quite a bit. And this is why I say, you know, I always bring in community into the conversation. Because as I look back over those years as an organizer, I see now the role, the very critical role that art played formally and informally in, in the organizing. And not as, uh, as some people may see it in terms of, it's the, it's the nice brooch on a beautiful dress for organizing. No, it's the dress, mm. <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, you couldn't get people to congregate and come and listen to the message unless there was an artist in the kitchen fixing food, right? Or, or there was someone to lead the songs and the chants and to make those chants up to help people put artistry into their posters and the murals and the t-shirts. We were surrounded by art as part of the movement and that continues to be a thing. And so fast forward to Creatives in Place, this was a conversation that, um, you know, it's a good thing, it's odd but good. Progressive funders uh, and a donor, uh, Akhenati Foundation, Dow Rising, Family, Philanthropy Center and, and, a, and, a, and a donor were having this conversation uh, in the fall of 2019 about what are we going to do to keep so many artists from leaving the Bay Area because they cannot afford to, to live here, right? Because of the economics, because of gentrification, and we can go on and on and on. And like, how do we not just stop, but really turn it around to something positive. And what the conclusion was is that we need to do a lot of deep listening to artists before we do anything. 
So Creatives in Place was essentially a listening project where we gathered 22 artists from all kinds of discipline and for some things that people wouldn't necessarily consider art, but we did and others do, like people who perform in drag, right? Um, and say, we need to hear your stories about how you have survived in this place in the midst of gentrification and, 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 and being dislocated because some of them were in the process of that was their reality and the art world and dealing with institutions. Uh, how, how has that been? And almost exactly at the same time that the pandemic started, the project launched. Um, I started interviewing artists in June of, of 2020. And, and so we had to add to that, what is it like to be an artist in the middle of a pandemic, right? And the stories we heard were very and amazing. But we also heard stories, heard stories about what was it like to deal with institutions like museums and other major art institutions. And also stories about what was it like to deal with institutions who maybe don't consider themselves art-specific institutions, but are embedded in communities. You know, a, a tattoo parlor that, that has a artist residency in East Oakland, right? What is it like to deal with those institutions as well? And what's the difference? The stories, and, and I wanna say, because I think this is important, because I think this happens oftentimes, particularly when the group you're talking about is a marginalized group uh, and has, or has a history of margin marginalization, I should say, because the group of artists we dealt with were very diverse in terms of uh, ethnicity and life experience and gender and all of that. We paid them for their time. They all received grants of $10,000 to participate. And we tell them they can do whatever they want with that money, make art or not, because they had already earned it. And we were in a pandemic. Like, people were not touring anymore. People were, couldn't get on a scaffold and make a mural outside with the community anymore, right? Art institutions have pretty much shut down, right? So um, it was interesting to hear these stories about how people were rediscovering their art in different ways. Muralists who were learning to paint on campuses. Um, cartoonists who were picking up their guitars and singing again. Um, and how that was enriching their art. And also just reflecting on, the, it gave them space also to reflect on their art career and what it meant to identify as an artist. And especially to do so in the Bay Area. And, and some of the lessons that we learned from that were really critical, and I think are really critical for institutions to know. Artists of this stripe, right, don't run along. They have their posse. They have pre-existing to the pandemic. They have their own networks of support. You know, we're talking about like, oh yes, my, my partner is my photographer, and, and this and that. That is the norm for artists. The people build their own tribe and own community of people in order to just survive, right? And that institutions oftentimes give no credit for that and don't, do not allow for that, that people need to come with their people. So you may not need to just pay for the artists, you may need to pay for the people who 
support the artists too, right? Uh, and by the way, those are people who are in communities that you want in your institution, who may not come to your institution any other way. One of the artists talked about how um, he did a, an exhibit for Google and how he said, we're not gonna have this event without me bringing my people and you're gonna help me bring my people to this event. And for the artists to have agency to be able to do that is really important, especially in these times. Artists talked about working with major institutions who wanted them to be their rep for diversity by default, by just being, right? Uh, to be the signifier, the virtue signaling, or even the, the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant by default. And how they did not want that burden and had to fight not to carry that burden off the time. They wanted to just do their art, right? And, and so, and to, to fight for the validity to call themselves artists if they didn't graduate from an art institution. Or if the discipline that they engaged in came from a cultural, consist, a, a cultural tradition that is not recognized. The art that I perform, um, Egyptian biology, is not codified in any college institution, right? And so, I can easily get relegated to the folk festival rather than a main stage amongst contemporary and other dance, right? So, because it's not a westernized, western art form. So, fast forward to the pandemic, and I think we're in a situation now uh, more than ever, and you're exactly right, a lot of these inequities were pre-existing, and the pandemic has really just made, laid them bare for us to see and exacerbated them and made them more prominent. And, and really, for the survival of art in institutions big and, and small, the question is, are you gonna continue to fight to quote unquote go back to normal, which for many people wasn't normal in the first place? Or, are you going to be down for this historic moment that we're in right now that really calls not just for something different, but something humane, right? Something that um, truly does interconnect us, which means that you have to take time to, to really build a relationship with these communities that's authentic and not transactional and therefore building a relationship with artists that is authentic and not just transactional. That is a major pivot that a lot of, lot of institutions have very difficult time doing because they are very wedded to westernized standards. They're very wedded to capitalism, right? Um, and ironically, in many cases, there's just a lack of imagination. They've been doing these things for decades, um, decades and decades on end. And so there's really, truly, in a lot of cases, an inability to imagine something radically different. And, and so, you know, as an equity consultant, I find myself in this time talking to clients of all stripes in terms of sizes of institutions, 
tied to institutions, that this is a time that we probably have to do less to do more better. Because we need to slow down, build authentic relationship, which takes time. You can't skip a step, right? Um, we have to go to the mountain and not expect the mountain to always come to us and on our terms. That means going to a community and maybe just sitting down and taking it in and not expecting anything from it, right? Um, and do things that may seem radical, but are not in this context. We're in a pandemic where we've all been emotionally scarred. And it's not if, but when the suit drops and there's a breakdown. So we need wellness programs that are real within our institutions. There are things that we have to do radically different. And to see those things not as we're doing it because it's a pandemic. No, we're doing it because this is the main thing to do that we should have been doing all along. And the pandemic has now created a situation where we, are, we have to do it to survive. And so I think that's the big leap that we're in the middle of, and that's what I'm seeing evolving. That's the current struggle that is happening, I think, at every level. Yes, we're going to come back with some follow-up questions about creatives in place, but I also just want to remember what you're saying about the humanity and the wellness aspect of it, because I feel like that's really important. Um, this next question is for Valerie. You had started to talk a little bit about the history of Southern exposure, um, but we also wanted to ask you more about your previous museum roles and the various ways that Southern exposure provides support to artists. My previous roles were um, right before Southern exposure, I was at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts um, overseeing their exhibitions program. And that um, I feel like that experience of working in a in a museum where you have uh, you know a giant space with with one exhibition after another this was a, you know a previous kind of iteration of of Yerba Buena but um, that experience of of constantly needing to keep moving and to um, always keeping an eye on on the logistics of of things of how to get stuff done is 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 really useful and also I think speaks to something that I think institutions, like this is speaking a little bit to what you're talking about, like something that institutions need to unlearn is like that kind of constant like busyness, kind of hyper productivity, need to be finding the, the next new thing and moving on to the next project. And I think one of the ways that, that SOAX and other organizations can be supportive for artists is, is in slowing down, like you're saying, and listening and, and working with, with artists more collaboratively. And I mean, that, that kind of came up for me most recently in an exhibition working on, on our, our current project in collaboration with a, a, an indigenous artist and wanting to be connected to the local um, association of Ramatosholoni people and thinking about what is it really meaningful, what, what's, what's a really meaningful engagement with them and how do we slow down and build a, a, a relationship that is going to, um, you know, long outlive me at, the, at, the, at Southern Exposure and be about our responsibility to, to this community and um, 
So that, that, that's one way. I mean, I think also one thing that Southern Exposure does in terms of supporting artists is um, that we use uh, the working artists for the general economy wage scale to, um, as our minimum to decide how, how we pay artists. And, and within that um, stipend that we might give to an artist for a project and a kind of um, and then other associated costs for their project, there is a back and forth about like, how, how do you want to spend this budget? Is it, do you want you know, all of this money um, as, as your stipend up front? Is that going to be the best way to support you? Or is, it gonna, is that going to um, screw you over in terms of taxes later on? And so do, we, do you want us to buy some things for you along the way? And like working out those details with, with folks, I think is really important. And then you know the other, um, the curatorial council that supports, that chooses exhibitions and projects at Southern Exposure um, was for a very long time in the course of, of Southern Exposure, um, like a volunteer gig. And we realized that like, that is gonna be exclusionary to a lot of people that, that's relying on people's privilege to, to be able to develop, devote that time. And so that's now a stipended um, program too. And, um, and the alternative exposure program, I think, really seeds, like as as we've seen, like in a few projects here in the in the room, it's it seeds programs out in the like in the landscape of the Bay Area in general too, and um, and also our young our our students are paid for participating in the program because otherwise, like you know, there are a lot of teenagers who who need to have part-time jobs or who need to support their siblings and their families and, and wouldn't otherwise be able to participate in programs. And so like paying students as well as teachers in, in our education programs, I think is really crucial. Yeah, thank you. Y'all are touching on a lot of things too that we wanna dive even deeper into. Um, but I also wanted to give Jessalyn an opportunity to talk about your experience as an artist, museum worker, um, and then wondered if you could also tell us more about your project, Organizing Power. Yeah, so Organizing Power is um, a project I started in 2018. It is a series of tools for arts and nonprofit workers to help form unions at their workplaces. And this project came about when I was a fellow at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, um, addressing the topic of political power. And at the time, I worked at SFMOMA. I managed the museum's teacher programs, and I think everyone's really talked about, I think, um, the difficulties of large institutions. They're not nimble. They cost a lot of money, especially when they build very large, expensive buildings. Um, and uh, maintaining a collection is very expensive, so you have to constantly fundraise. And usually um, what isn't matched in fundraising is worker pay, as we all know, but you know, the large institutions are really rife with potential and also a lot of drawbacks and inequities, as we know. So at the time, I was very involved in union organizing. SFMOMA is the second oldest museum union in the country. It's a wall-to-wall -wall union, so it's the largest, which means that every single union worker who's employed by SFMOMA is all in the same union, rather than split out into like AV techs um, and like other kinds of workers, preparators, et cetera. So it's a really powerful union. Uh, the museum expanded while I worked there over the course of five years, opened its big, beautiful new building, and then everyone I worked with was super overworked and super underpaid and was really frustrated because we had like a, a 
a wage increase, we were trying to bargain with the museum, and that was the first time I joined the bargaining team to negotiate. And the museum wanted to pay us um, zero percent for our lowest uh, paid workers and that is the most uh, racially diverse workforce uh, so that was really frustrating as you can imagine to an institution that was like trying to be bold and splashy and innovative for the art of our time but like uh, wouldn't listen to the needs of the workers who are also often artists and even if they don't identify as artists deserve a living wage to be able to live in the Bay Area so that was really tough and we spent a year just bargaining the smallest increase um, and then after that, we had to bargain our entire contract, which includes like healthcare, um, leave, family benefits. Like our benefits were like notoriously terrible uh, for our health insurance. Um, and so often, you know, we survey members. Most members reported having like two or three jobs because they couldn't afford to just work, even though they were full time. Like a lot of my colleagues would be like, "Okay, I'm working at the museum store, and then I'm going to my bookstore gig on the weekend." Like I'm an also a, you know a working artist, so I work on my art practice outside of my job and you know people work in restaurants and all kinds of things uh, because it's really hard to live here in the Bay Area as we know so we were bargaining this whole contract and the museum just kept resisting and resisting and both times we had to um, work with a federal mediator uh, because we could not come to an agreement it was kind of horrible because the museum had this really bold new vision for the strategic plan and just wouldn't listen to the staff who actually, you know, a thing when I think about artist-centered institutions, I also think about worker-centered institutions. And a lot of the changes that museums need to make are really easily found if you ask the staff who work on it. And uh, it was fighting tooth and nail. So I was uh, across the street after my job, I would go to my awesome little fellowship. And YBCA is not a unionized institution. There's a few unionized institutions in the Bay Area, but like over the years, um, my union rep who I worked with um, at OPEIU, a really awesome small union, would be like, yeah, you know, someone always tries to unionize there. And then they get another job or they go work across the street at SFMOMA or whatever. So I thought, well, like, what if we like could make a tool that would help people find out how to form a union? because. If we're talking about political power, there's tools that already exist. I'm always like looking for systems and tools that do exist that we can harness to do something useful. It's why I was a teacher, um, and it's why I saw labor unions as a really important path forward. Um, I'm sure you've all seen in the news in the past couple years, so many museums have unionized, and it's because we've hit this like breaking point with workers. And so I decided to create my project focusing on unionizing. And so I created a risograph printed booklet that would like look like a really cool art booklet and really be in the audience of the art world that would just tell you step by step how you start a union. Like step one, talk to your colleagues, uh, talk to a rep, start like collecting emails because um, this information is out there, but in America, we don't really learn labor history for a reason. And so how can you make that information accessible, but also less dry? Like sure, you could go look up on a bunch of union websites that are hard to navigate, but how do you make it seem cool and enticing to art people? And so if you just put it in like a really cool, well-designed booklet that um, you could go buy at an art book fair or get for free on if you email me, and, and since then, it's, I, I've distributed them to museum workers across the country, even globally. The Philadelphia Museum of Art used it to help form their union. They would like bring it to their meetings, which I thought was just like so moving. And um, a quote from them is that organizing power spoke our language, which is exactly the goal. And then um, I have uh, some collaborators I work with on this project, um, including two former um, union colleagues who had negotiated with and our former union rep. 
And so we created a second one because once you form the union, you then have to actually bargain the contract. And that's a whole other phase that's really super difficult. So we got a really awesome grant from Southern Exposure for that. And um, that um, the project has just continued. We're working on a third one. Um, the Wexner Center for the Arts, I had sent them a bunch of booklets back in November. And then last week they organized, um, they announced publicly their intent to form their union. So for me, it's really exciting. And you know, from a like, self-centered perspective it's something that gives me a lot of hope in this world and i think that's just something that's really important to me as an artist and person is we need to look for those things that are going to um, motivate us and inspire us to push forward and so just like making these tools accessible for uh this audience is super important to me did that answer your question yes yeah. Yeah. i just i want to say something i'm like in awe of this work that you have done but also as someone who runs an institution and knows museum budgets inside and out this is insanely important work but museum directors also there's also a way to prioritize upping salaries over museum building projects so i'm just gonna also say that mm -hmm. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, well, and little side note, I think how I was first introduced to Jessalyn's work is that I used to work at SFMOMA when I first moved out to San Francisco on the frontline staff, which I think is what you're talking about. So I sort of indirectly experienced a lot of that friction you're talking about and really um, appreciated and admired all of the union advocacy work. But this sort of brings us into our next topic. Yeah, we want to talk about uh, whether based on your personal experience in your work or things that you've observed from other institutions or organizations, what's working and what is not working. Uh, we can start with Tammy. I just feel compelled to say that like, I was an OPIU shop steward as a community organizer in Milwaukee yeah. way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and, and related to unions, I think this is really important that we get out ahead of the divide and conquer that will happen when folks become unionized at these institutions and artists start wanting to do things and they can't because of union regulations. Or, you know, they don't have the budget to because the funder didn't fund them well enough, right? That is a built-in divide and conquer that we need to get out ahead of. It doesn't have to happen. It shouldn't happen. And that means it's really critical that artists across the board are paid a living wage. One, a living wage for the Bay Area. So there is not that divide and conquer about I can't go to this institution and stage my event there because they, it's expensive because it's unionized. That is the wrong language. That is not the right analysis for that situation. You can't go there because you didn't get enough grant money to pay yourself and your staff and to have a budget to afford to be there. Yes. That's what's really going on, right? So um, this is really exciting to me and there's a bigger picture that we have to really get our arms around. And for me, it really begs the question of we, we need to be very careful of the narratives that get out there about why things are the way they are and have an analysis about that that's in action. Yes. Right? Um, because this is how we become divided and conquered by systems that want to keep going. Right? That are uncomfortable with conversations like this. Yes. Right? Um, 
And so what's happening that's right is that A, we're having these conversations. People like you are having these conversations, organizing these conversations so that we can become aware and begin to think about, okay, what's the next step, right? Um, and what I'm seeing is actually there are lots of groups that are saying, okay, it's we're at this point in the pandemic, what's realistic for us now? Or what should we do next? It's a critical moment right now. It's a critical moment because funders are, there are funders out there that are trying to figure out how to change their funding programs, how to change their application processes. Um, doesn't mean that necessarily things will be for the better, but there's an opportunity now to get engaged in that conversation. And so I'm encouraging groups to ally, to partner, and go and have those collective conversations with funders about, we need more general support so that we can pay our staff better and have a better benefit structure, <laughs> right? Um, because the, the, what I've seen as both, someone on both sides of that in terms of someone who's have put down productions and someone who's worked with organizations that are trying to do what they do is that um, the money is in the program, the money's in the seats and the butts, the money is not invested in building an organization that people can live and work in in a healthy way, right? Um, and therefore you keep having, you end up doing too much, you know, I, it's a phrase that I find myself saying a lot to a lot of my clients, you're doing too much. To do this realignment, to, to figure out how to make things more equitable, to stop harm from ha happening amongst your staff, and because of the way the organization is structured, you need time and space to realign yourself. And it's hard to do that when you have 10 programs going on at once, and they're all understaffed and underfunded. Yet, your funders want you to deliver those deliverables. Right? This is a critical time to have that internal conversation within the organization and for organizations to ally with each other so they don't feel like they're the only one talking to funding and funders and putting their own funders funding at risk, but for groups or organizations to get together and, and get in front of the foundation and funders and, and donors who influence each other and say, this is the realignment we need because this is the moment that we have to make this happen. We need wellness programs, we need good benefit packages, we need to engage in communities in a better, healthier way. And the way that we can do that is not the way we've been doing work, right? Um, some of those conversations are happening. We need more of them. Um, there are funders, in, both in terms of donors and institutions, that are having conversations and trying to figure that out, we need to be in those conversations with them to guide some of that, to bring some reality to those conversations and to catch ourselves in old narratives that aren't true and never work for us, right? One of the first things I have groups do is talk about what's your founding story? 
And what about that story was equitable? And what about that story was inequitable? So that we can begin to make a cultural shift internally. Right? And, and so that needs to happen at every strata, at every level. Um, and it's easier to, to feel like we're just gonna go back to the normal and do what we've always done or keep on innovating without having the resources and time and space to do it in a way that's healthy and sustainable, right? And wonder why it still feels elitist and, and un, unapproachable. So I think what I'm saying to answer the question is that these conversations are happening, which is clear, which is really important, and we need more of them, and we need them at every level. Yeah, I love that you're already introducing some of these action items, which is one of the things we wanted to get to ultimately. So I think to add on to that question of what's working and not working, as we open it up to the other panelists, would maybe be to also ask, what are some of the things museums, you feel museums can do to be more attuned to the needs of artists working for and within the organization? Um, I guess I'll allow anyone to, to jump in here. I could go. Um, I will go with an obvious answer, but um, what's working is um, are the workers. And so when I um, was an OPEIU member worker organizer, one of our favorite OPEIU slogans that I think is really apt is this place works because I do. Um, I think the workers, at, especially at these larger institutions, are the ones that are going to push the change that the institutions need in order to survive and thrive. And what um, these institutions can do is listen to those workers and their resources. Um, but I just think that's to me um, what is so powerful and the shift we need is that all of um, the equity and justice work that museums want to do is really possible because the workers will push you to do it. And like on a basic level, what institutions can do is say if workers wanna organize voluntarily, recognize their union, like that's such a huge thing for workers who are organizing is that the museum or nonprofit will hire a consultant to try and like talk them out of organizing and how it's not going to work for them. So just like let them organize if that's what they want to do. Um, I, I will also just say like uh, something I've learned a lot about working in large institutions is uh, just how much they're not monoliths and they're made up of individuals and that to me is what is so powerful. It's so nuanced because like a really large institution you can be like oh well psh, like I'm writing off that institution because this that and whatever but like there are really um, amazing individuals doing really impactful work and that's that's why people work for these low wages like uh you know all of my colleagues at sfmoma are still some really important collaborators and organizers and friends and community members to me um, in all the work that i do in my life and so that is like such a strength and an asset that institutions really would benefit from from utilizing that and supporting the workers who are also the artists of our communities. And you know, artists are not isolated from communities. I really believe that and felt that. And um, if you wanna support communities, you also do that by supporting the people who work there. So um, yeah, that's, that's my piece. No, no, I think that's, that's a super important thing to say. And I, I certainly feel the exact same way about SFMOMA. It really is my deep origin story and the people there are like really people who formed who I am as a professional and and many of them still there, of course. 
Um, and for me, I think it has so much to do with transparency of the business model, right? To like help everybody understand what it actually takes to fund and run an institution, um, where the money comes from, right? Our government does not fund our arts organizations. Our corporations actually do not fund our arts organizations. Individuals fund our arts organizations. So. I, as the director of the ICA San Francisco, fundraise every dollar that's going to fund this institution. So we have a $3 million operating budget. We do not yet have any endowment, meaning like any cash reserve that's going to yield each year a fund that's going to pay. So every year I'm going to start from zero and fundraise $3 million to pay the salaries, pay the artists, pay for the exhibitions, pay for the rent, for this building, all the stuff, the renovation. That's how we're going to pay for this, which is a huge fundraising push. And that's all going to come from wealthy people who believe that giving their money away is valuable because they believe that a contemporary arts organization that believes in equity and change in the art world is an important thing for the Bay Area. So that's actually a good thing, right? That there are people in our community who believe in giving their money to this. And my job and the job of many of my colleagues is to help tell that story and, and make it a symbiotic relationship. So that's good, um, but it's a, a big part of my, it's my job. Um, it's a lot of heavy lift, but I think it's also super important that all of us and my colleagues who work with me on this, the artists who work with me on this and all of us understand that. And that's where that comes from. And it's a big heavy lift and it's a big part of what we do and it's why we do donor dinners and it's why we do all the stuff that we do and that's what it is. And I would like to see that change. I would like for the government and corporations and other foundations to do this. And it's pretty easy to, or it's not easy, but it's easier to fundraise for the sexy things, the exhibitions, the building sexy projects, whatever. It's much harder to fundraise for pipes and HVAC and whatever, um, or salaries even. And so I think one of the things we said with ICA and we're doing it is that our salaries for the staff are well above how we know to check it, right? The AAMD, the American Association of Museum Directors, puts out a salary survey every year that tells you like in kind of any job you can imagine there being in a museum at this budget model in this region. It's kind of, this is the average salary range. You can look at kind of the cost of living in this area of the country at this budget model. And we have, obviously the Bay Area is one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive city in the country. So this budget model, our salaries are like, well above average. Still, I would argue, not a great salary for living in the Bay Area, but well above average. The same, we use the wage scale as well for artists. We're still well above what we're paying artists. I would still argue, boy, I'd like to pay people even more than that, but it's tough, right? I have to look at the whole budget, but we're still, I feel good about where we are. I'd like to be higher. When our budget gets higher, we'll go higher, but I look holistically at all of it. But I would like to use panels like this and continue to use panels like this to tell that whole story really publicly, because I would like for everybody to understand what it actually takes to fund this thing and pay the team and pay the artists and pay for the rent and the lights and all the stuff because that's what it takes to run this. And a question I would love to actually put to you is, if salaries were high and you really had an institution that genuinely seemed like it valued individuals over institutions, let's say we actually pull this off and the ICA 
actually feels for the people who work in it and the artists who work with us, like it's doing that. Do you think unions are still going to feel as important? And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I genuinely am curious. Um, I really look forward to being able to answer that yeah, question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, should, I would love to sit here. I mean, I would love it. I mean, I think, like, um, where unionizing, organizing is the strongest is because there are, are issues and people are unhappy. And, and, you know, most organizers will tell you uh, what makes people want to start a union is that uh stuff is going wrong at work like you don't have the appropriate safety gear so like uh i love to live in a world of possibility and if like unions are obsolete that's awesome i will be super excited we should talk about this i know i'm like i don't know how that happens under capitalism i don't know perhaps uh but i think this is where we can now as artists we should use our imagination right so like that question it really maybe there's a different way to think of that question how can unions and the people who run these institutions be in partnership? Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there, was, there will always be a need, I think, to have a function of people who listen intently to the workers. Yes. Who, that is their job to do that. Right? And as you were talking, my mind was, how do we shift this whole dynamic uh, like, I agree, yes, people need to know how these institutions are funded. And people need to know that we actually need to charge our public servants, politicians, yes. to support the arts the way they should be supported. Correct. It's not an either or, it's a both and, yeah. right? So if we think of other institutions, take prisons, Why are prisons supported at the level that they're supported? Well, you know, if you go back into the 80s, when the whole prison building complex was really exploding, you know, farms were being taken over by corporations and people needed jobs. Prisons created jobs in these rural areas. And so they got funded. And the whole system got turned to make sure that they would continue to be funded. Whereas to the point that they looked at third grade reading scores to predict how many prison beds to build. Right? What if we had that kind of zeal for the arts? Right. In government. Where people understand that there are jobs here for our communities. First, these institutions need to have a relationship with the communities for people to feel that, right? So this is why I say we we can't skip and go to the solution about working through the issue and the history and, and, and what has happened. People see these as elitist institutions that have nothing to do with their communities. Maybe a few people know a few people who work at them, but they don't feel that. That relationship has to change, right? Yes. And once people see that, oh, they're, they're us. My cousin works there. You know, my friend had an exhibit there. We went and partied there. Yes. <laughs> it's part of us. Then there, there would be a demand for government to fund it. <laughs> right? Yes. But we can't skip that step. We have to, that's why we have to build those relationships. And argue that you fund this like you fund the military. We just you fund this like story. you fund prisons, yes. right? Because 
This is part of national security. Art is part of national security. Um, that's a whole process that we can't skip steps to get to. It doesn't feel critical. Right. Yeah, I feel like this element of transparency is really important, understanding the actual work behind running an organization or running a museum. And that's very much in the spirit of the podcast. The hope is to be more transparent about what it actually looks like to build a career in the arts means that we might value those things more. And because we're sort of already talking about what does an alternative model look like, um, I also well, maybe I want to pose this question to Valerie. I know that Southern Exposure, for example, um, seems to create a, more of a democratic process of decision making through things like co-directorships or having a curatorial council. And so I wonder if you might want to speak to that um, and then any other panelists that want to jump in and uh, maybe talk about ways that that organizational structure could be shifted as well. Yeah. and. Um in answer to your question about like what what's working and what's not i feel like one thing during the pandemic that did kind of work was that um foundations changed a lot of um how they were funding and went towards a more general operating support model than just project-based models which i would love to see them continue to do because that actually gives organizations a little bit more freedom to be able to support uh, artists in the way that they need to and um, and to be flexible in the moment and things like that and that kind of transparency those relationships between funders and and arts organizations and artists those conversations are, are super important too but yeah we um, I, I think having a co-directorship and, like affects the whole organization because all of our, our decisions are, are made in, in a you know, not just between the two of us, but between the, the staff, um, all of us, and um, and our, our artist-run curatorial council, like you said. Um, and so there's a lot of, of back and forth and transparency in terms of decision-making processes and why things happen the way that they do. And yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, and um, I feel like you all have already been throwing out a lot of really actionable steps that we can take, whether at an individual or at an organizational level. And I, I guess we wanted to take that a step further because unbelievably, we're already coming up towards the end of our panel here. So um, we wanted to kind of end with a question about what some actionable next steps might look like. And we understand that radical change requires bold thinking and a willingness to disrupt. Um, and to do things differently, but we also know that it can be a little more nuanced than that, and there are very real day-to-day challenges and barriers to being able to implement some of these changes. And so this is sort of a two-part question, um, but thinking kind of macro and micro, we wanted to know um, what is one bigger change that you would like to see if we're talking wish fulfillment here uh, or dreaming big, you know, what are those large structural changes? And then also, what is one small but maybe significant change that you think places could implement today uh, to start working towards a more equitable future? Um, and I'll just open it up to whoever would like to start. Such a big question. I know, it's a big one. <laughs> I could just add that um, sharing power is uh, really important amongst uh, staff and the community and I've you know I've really seen um, a few organizations in the Bay Area that's been inspiring to me shift to this co-directorship model I think uh, I had a conversation with someone about that recently I think that power is really important 
community involvement in programming. And I think like as all of us as individuals, as artists and art workers, just like working with people and, um, you know, working in solidarity with people and working in togetherness, it's uh, a really easy step. And like, maybe there's like one thing in your life that you can do with someone else uh, is a way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I constantly think about the funding model, right? I think the more that we can, I think the Bay Area is full of extremely generous people who are have the capacity to support the arts for, through private wealth and do, and that's exciting, and of course we're grateful, but I think the more that we could get away from museum leaders having to spend all of their time dealing with private wealth and working to support the institutions that way, it would be great. So the more we could look to our governments and even, frankly, corporations. I have arguments with people all the time about whether that would take the pressure off museum leaders of having to spend all their time with wealthy people having to do private wealth management. Um, I think that would be a big deal. Um, and just change the sort of sense of, I really love what, what you were saying, frankly, about the critical national security element of, of the arts. I've never heard that said that way before, and I think that's a very powerful way of framing it. Um, to me, it changes everything if the arts are seen as vital to our survival, um, which I see it that way. Um, and I think it doesn't work that way. It takes money to make this stuff happen. And I see it very clearly because I spend my entire day finding the money to make this stuff happen to support the team so I can pay them to make, because they are the ones that make it actually happen. Um, the artists, of course, so we can create, give them funds to make the work happen, because we are here at the end of the day for the artists. We have, I haven't said that a lot, but that is, of course, why we're here. Yeah, so that's big. I, you're just catching me in the minute where I'm trying to figure out the money, so that's really where my head is right now. <laughs> yeah. The funding's a huge part of it, it seems, based both on the kind of individual and creating standards for living wages, but also at the organizational level, it sounds like that is one of the bigger challenges. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear, like ICA is an incredibly privileged institution. We've raised a huge amount of money, but we also are spending a huge amount of money. We're insanely privileged, and I want to keep that going so that we can continue to use that privilege to create unbelievable opportunities for artists and, and arts workers, um, but I have to keep that going. So. Thank you all. Um, we just, I guess, want to give another opportunity if any of you have any closing thoughts to share before we wrap up our conversation. Yeah, I actually want to respond to your question. Oh, yeah. I, I needed a moment to think yeah, about it. Um, I mean, my dream is for art institutions to shift in how they think of themselves to a, a culture shift that embodies themselves as community-based art centers and not to feel that that's a reductive phrase, but that's an empowering phrase. A place where communities see, this is where we gather. This is where we party. This is where we strategize. This is where we feel like we belong, right? And this is where we make art, where we get to be artists, and where we get to celebrate other people who see themselves as artists. I think, for the survival of many institutions, that is absolutely necessary, whether they know it or not. And you know, if I put on my organ community organizing hat, I feel the way we get there is that we get into the community and talk to people all the time, constantly, aggressively. 
if you look at whoever you may think of as the loyal opposition and, and the politics of this, they are out in the community talking to people and organizing the community. I guarantee you. I see them do that all the time. They are at the churches, the community fairs, they're knocking door to door, they're in the schools, they're at the school board meeting, they're running for dog catcher, and <laughs> they are in there making those connections to, to our uncles and aunties and the neighbor next door that we aren't. <laughs> and it's to our detriment. And we have, I, I feel that there is a conflict adverse, adverse posture that we have that is crippling our ability to grow and to become the entity where the public the, 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 the people in communities, the American public, are demanding that their city governments and that the Federal Arts Commission fund the arts so that people not just have decent salaries, but they have pensions, <laughs> right? Um, they have a life in the arts and they're just, that these community-based art centers have a life. But we don't get there without those conversations. We don't get there about that grassroots organizing. And I think there's a fear of doing that. And until we confront that fear, we are going to be focused on raising $3 million from the handful of donors. And it's not that we want to lose those people. And I don't think we will. I think we can get even more of them. Absolutely. Right? Um, but that is a diminishing return if we stay there. It always is. And so I, I really do think it's possible. People need places to gather and be a community collectively. And these big, beautiful spaces are built for that. And um, that's what I do love. I love that. Good. Yeah, amen. That was good. But, um, in a, yeah, in addition to that, I, I feel like one of the things that I've learned a lot at working at Southern Exposure is, is like how even an organization that calls itself a community center that has been around for a long time, how disconnected we can get and how important it is to partner with other organizations that are have been doing the work for a long time and that that has been so like the most amazing thing that I've learned in the past few years are those partnerships. Yeah, well, thank you all so much. It has been such an enormous privilege to be here in conversation with you all and to learn from each of your experiences. And I feel like you've created a really beautiful framework for us all to think about what it really looks like to be a part of an arts community and to view ourselves as all a part of this interconnected ecosystem. And I think you know, we had this term artist-centered kind of top of mind when we came into this panel and some ideas about what it meant, but I know, I feel like you all have really broadened that and also started to describe and lay out a plan for what that actually looks like. And I think that is an amazing step and I hope we can all go out and continue to have these conversations and be in conversation with one another about what, what some of those actionable steps are um, and just to continue to bring 
more transparency to these conversations and to, um, like everything you're saying, Tammy, go out in community and really listen and just continue to learn from one another. So thank you all. Thank you thank guys you. so thank much. You. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank you all so much for joining and, and sharing your, your thoughts and experiences and wisdom. And thank you all for attending our first ever live recording. This is, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm anxious. We're so grateful to all of you for participating and all of you to, for attending and supporting the podcast in this wonderful space. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks to ICASF for hosting us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. <laughs> thanks for coming. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, and if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. Thank you.